This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome back to New Books in Political Science, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Susan Lee Bell at St. Joseph's University, and today I'm joined by Dr. Michael Rodriguez Munez to discuss his new book, Figures of the Future Latino Civil Rights and the Politics of Demographic Change, published by Princeton University Press in 2021. Figures of the Future examines the contemporary population politics of national Latino civil rights advocacy. The book challenges readers to generally understand demographic projections as uniquely problematic and manufactured, and specifically consider the case of how prominent Latino civil rights groups use such projections during the Obama and Trump administrations to, quote, accelerate the when of Latino political power, close quotes. Civil rights groups believed that they could mobilize demographic data about the growing Latino population to increase political recognition and respect, hoping to unify and inspire. But Figures of the Future urges us to be attentive to the manner in which projected demographics can be, quote, objects of aspiration, but also sources of frustration, and they can be weaponized. Rodriguez Munez asks us to see that it is, quote, politics, not demography, that governs what we think and feel about ethno-racial demographic change, close quotes. We don't need better data. We need a more critical and vigilant eye to the political phenomena. Dr. Michael Rodriguez Munez is an assistant professor of sociology and Latino Latino Studies at Northwestern University, and I'm delighted to welcome him to the New Books Network. Thank you, Susan. Thank you for having me. So when did you start thinking about demographics, and, and what led you to examine this particular time period or this particular example? Yeah, the, the, I think for me, the, the process was a, a bit... Uh, circuitous. Uh, I, I began as a graduate student at the University of Illinois, Chicago in sociology, becoming um, interested in the category Latino um, as a result of of doing some research on immigrant rights uh, activism. And I started to want, I started wanting to sort of cl- complicate and sort of historicize that category. Uh, and that led me to the U.S. Census Bureau, which is, as many may recall, uh, introduced the category Hispanic in the 1980 census. Uh, and in the course of beginning to uh, imagine a project that would be historical, uh, I was uh, at this at, by this point, I was now a graduate student at Brown University taking an ethnography class during the 2010 census. 
And I decided while I'm I'm trying to, I guess, think of a, a dissertation project that would be historical, let me explore what the kind of un- underground conversation looks like around these categories and the census um, in 2010. And really, it was it was in interviews and conversations with local leaders that I started to really want to think about demographics. Um, these local leaders in, in Rhode Island and Central Falls, a small city just uh, north of, of, of Rhode Island, um, communicated to me a deep uh, desire uh, for data um, and a way that I don't relate to data <laughs> and specifically quantitative data. And also um, the, the way that and I talk a little bit about this in the in the in the in the preface, but the way that they they become inc- incredible. Uh, become uh, animated by this idea of the growth of the Latino population in Rhode Island and nationally, right? And the kind of recognition that they were anticipating. And that I found that completely fascinating, Uh, just that relationship to data and also the kind of deep emotive um, sort of reactions and responses to something like demographic change. Uh, and, and, and you had, and not to interrupt you, but and you had had that experience yourself as an undergraduate. You talk about like about holding up a uh, you know a statistic that says like look at how many students are here, and you don't have an association, and you don't have any faculty, and you, you're not thinking about us, which I think was an amazing way to sort of tell that story, which to understand that you yourself had once been um, tempted into using that absolutely, kind of data. Absolutely, absolutely, and um, it, you know the preface is is thanks to advice that I received. Um, at a at a book a manuscript, but yeah, it, it, I I started the when I was working on the book and thinking about and had been invited to write a preface, I started reflecting on my own practice of engaging demographics, and yeah, that began as as an undergrad at Northeastern Illinois University. Uh, myself and a number of students were trying to problematize and agitate and organize around the la- lack of uh, la- Latino, now we would probably say Latinx, faculty, students, uh, cultural center, and the like. And we turned to uh, using demographic data, enrollment data, which said, for instance, that 31% of the freshman class were, were Latino, Latina. Um, and we tried to sort of leverage that in, uh, with in, in you know in meetings with administrators and also in our conversations with students, right? To say like, look, we deserve these things, and uh, we're not being taken seriously. Though the university has the designation of Hispanic-serving institution, but it's actually not investing in this population. Um, and some time passed between those practices that I was engaging with. And then my subsequent sort of exploration of demographics, which I hadn't actually made that connection. It was almost a, another lifetime. Uh, but doing the book and thinking about it uh, made me sort of remember uh, my own sort of participation in some of these practices. Um, and, and I think gave me a better sense of the, the kind of historical uh, and also the kind of uh, contemporary political landscape that, that would have encouraged me uh, and my fellow activists to draw on demographic data in the way that we did, uh, particularly that we in other sort of political issues, we were not relying on numbers. But in relation to these sorts of issues around equity and recognition, we drew upon them. Um, and so, yeah, so there's a long and I, one of the important things for me to sort of talk about that in the, the, in the book is also 
I didn't want uh, the reader to leave a sense of here's another academic sort of pointing their finger at political actors who are attempting to address issues and using the means and resources and tools that they have at, at their disposal. I wanted to say that, you know, they're not the only ones that do that. I also participated in that. Many of us engage in these kinds of practices. Given that, can we think and reflect on them and and, and sort of contemplate what might be the benefits and pitfalls of, of that kind of political strategy? I think you're really successful in the book, Michael, in both critically interrogating what the groups are doing while expressing empathy and understanding for some of the motivations and and where the impetus is coming from. You've already mentioned this, so I'm just going to sort of get it out there, and you have it in the book, about language. So on the one hand, uh, uh, your sort of first inclination is to say Latinx, but the title of the book has Latino in it. So I just wanted to start off by clarifying, uh, and you do it beautifully in the book, as as to the choices that you made in terms of, in this narrative, referring to these groups as Latino. Yeah, that's a great point and something I thought a lot about as I was writing the book, in part because, uh, you know, over the time that I'm conducting the research and during the time that I'm writing the book, uh, which began as a dissertation, uh, there are, you know, growing debates and discussions about what categories should be used. Should we use these pan-ethnic labels at all? Should we use Latinx? What might be the benefits or problems with that? Um and, and of course, you know, I talk a little bit about how there's a long history of these debates around these categories, whether Hispanic is better than Latino or Latino Latina and the kind of gender critique, all important uh, interventions. And um, I felt compelled to write a short sort of, uh, um, you know, uh, sort of to discuss the issue in at the end of the conclusion, just so readers would know that I've thought about this, I ultimately decided to land on Latino uh, because that was the category in play, the dominant category for the political actors and the political context in which I was studying. So Latinx, for instance, has slowly, you know, uh, is increasingly being adopted by these organizations, but Latino and Latina, if they want to emphasize, uh, Latinas in particular uh, are the main categories. I felt like uh, labeling it Latinx might ascribe to these organizations a set of politics and a set of commitments that um, are are either not accurate uh, for the period that I studied um, or, you know, things that they're still working out in terms of their categories of choice. but, you know, if, if if I had my preference, I would probably have, you know, uh, Latina, Latino, Latinx, like, together. Um, but, you know, I decided to stick with Latino for for the purposes of, the, of, of, of those reasons. I think more and more of those moments in books are ones that I actually reread three or four times because uh, I think that people writing about race, uh, writing about other categories that are constructed and that the language changes are thinking about this. And when they are as willing as you are to be uh, transparent about their the, the thinking and the arc, 
I think it's actually really helpful to other authors. And I would say to those people who are thinking about buying the book, this would be one of the reasons to buy the book would just be to read that actually half page or page uh, about about how you how you came to think about that and and who you take into consideration and what they've done. Can, can so, I say one? Can I say one yeah, thing about that though? Of course. I, uh, it's uh, it also I think reflects um, the you know. It, my own uh engage you know it, i think uh, let's say 5 or 6 years ago or even 10 years ago that kind of conversation would likely not have been like i myself may have taken for granted that um but in this moment uh i think that uh, we, it, the the moment is demanding importantly greater reflexivity greater transparency about those those choices around terminology categories what we mean by them uh and and so i i, I think it also reflects the time in which i'm writing uh and 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 i think it's an like something that we need to do not just as like cover for critique but as genuine engagement and recognition that there are serious political struggles being had around these these labels, their implications, their erasures, their possibilities, uh, and 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 I think that's vital both for politics and any level of community building we might want to sort of develop around these labels. Now that's beautifully said. My students are reading uh, some 19th century black political thought and they're shocked to see people of color as the term, mm-hmm. <laughs> as a term people are using to describe themselves then and now is somehow thought of as a modern term. And so I, I think it's really important for us to be conscious about this. So no, thank you so much for sharing that. You know, I, I was saying right before we began that I was at a conference and I found myself using two aspects of your work, the sort of general issues with ethno-racial demographics and the specifics of this case. So let's start with the general. Um, As you state in the book, you know, we look at a lot of graphs, we hear a lot of figures, especially after a census when we have, you know, new data. Uh, And you're right that, you know, many people ascribe... uh, to this data, a kind of naturalism. You call it democratic na- uh, demographic national naturalism, and I, I'd like to start with with that uh, and, and your reasons for challenging the assumptions that support democra- demographic nat- naturalism, um, especially its relationship to racializing groups. So a lot of us don't know that term. You can tell because I'm yeah. stumbling over it, and uh, and you do a great job of sort of taking apart why it's problematic. So if you'd share that before we start with the the, the more specifics of the book. The, the the context part of the context for me is here I'm I'm conducting this research and I'm 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 at the same time that I'm studying these civil rights organizations and we'll get into the the case there's of course a, a broader political discursive context um, over the last several decades uh, there's a longer history to that but in this kind of uh, more sort of recent iteration uh, that. A, a, a circulation of data and discourses, numbers and narratives about ethno-racial demographic change. Um, often that traffics in a kind of inevitability, uh, imputes certain kind of powers to these demographic trends. Um, you, you can see statements that these trends will 
will decide the future of U.S. politics or that this is what this these these data suggests about the meaning of race in a like very singular, um, you know, and uh, settled way. Uh, so it, it it felt important to me to to reconsider those um, those kind of assumptions that are are at this point kind of like baked in and taken for granted uh, in demographic discourse um, and what I call population politics in in the book and it, it at its basic level um, I, I I use the notion of demographic naturalism um, suggesting that it's one uh, attitude or one perspective, uh, that we have uh, on demographics, a way of, of sort of interpreting and thinking about demographics. Um, and what makes it sort of natural, why I talk about it as naturalism, is the way that it, it presumes, for instance, that populations are born uh, rather than built. Um, it, it presumes that demographic trends um, by themselves are kind of like an act of nature um, that will impact society uh, unmediated by how people understand them, see them, respond to them, um, and also a kind of presumption that demographic statistics give us a kind of a, a, a straightforward, clear, objective account of these demographic populations and trends, right? And 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 I felt that those kind of assumptions that pervade both public discourse and much academic work, and here I'm not I'm, I'm not throwing stones at the field of demography alone, right? But the social sciences and others, um, you know, I felt like that those kind of assumptions uh, do not provide, I think, the kind of historical, contextual, interpretive foundations upon which uh, we that that we need in order to better understand. Uh, the 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 means through which demographic ideas, knowledge, circulate and get mobilized and um, have an impact on how we see demographic trends and see populations and things. Um, so I felt like if 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 we didn't if if I wasn't able to sort of question um, those assumptions, it would be it it would be hard for me, I think, to understand what was what's actually happening, like the kind of work that those discourses, those charts, those statements are doing. Um, but, you know, that's, that's, that's a challenge that, you know, and, and in doing that, I'm building on a variety of works um, of scholars that have tried to critically interrogate the production and circulation of, of, of census data and quantitative data more generally, as well as people, um, scholars who have attempted to challenge, uh, you know, deep-seated uh, racial essentialisms out there and sort of our conceptions of race um, that that closely, so demographic naturalism I talk about in the book, links very nicely in practice and in history with racial essentialisms, such that we can, uh, we can easily say that this population exists as a kind of discrete uh, you know, a set a set of, of peoples, and we can ascribe to them certain kind of characteristics, proclivities, and the like. Um, and and I feel like we we need to get away from that. We need to complicate both that naturalism and the essentialism uh, as they pervade scholarly and uh, and lay discussions about demographics. 
So you divide the book into past, future, and present, which I know at first sounds boring, uh, but actually ends up being essential to the argument that, and this is a quote from the book, so-called the so-called Browning of America owes much to much more to political cultural dynamics than to the complexion of emergent populations, which very much goes with what you were just talking about. So let let's begin with the past, which is how the book is structured. Um, what are the earliest expressions of racialized population politics in the U.S.? Um, you use a term, uh, demo dystopias, which I'm adding to my vocabulary, um, especially when I teach Benjamin Franklin's concerning the increase of mankind uh, and people uh, making, sorry, <clears throat> increase of mankind uh, and the uh, Chinese exclusion politics in the 19th and 20th century. So, so tell us a little bit about these sort of earlier versions of racialized uh, population politics. Absolutely. Um, so I, I, I felt it. You know, so actually, let me if, if I can back up and just say a little bit about population politics itself as a, as a kind of concept. Um, of course. So what, what I mean by population politics uh, are the kinds of uh, techniques and tactics, uh, struggles, engagements undertaken to shape uh, how uh, population and demographic trends are are seen, understood, uh, reacted to, and felt. Um, and 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 the reason why this term is is really important is that one of the outcomes of demographic naturalism is the presumption that our responses to population trends are automatic. You know, a certain population is growing, so of course we're going to be afraid. We're going to be more anxious. Uh, and, 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 and the assumption that we will know, uh, what trends are important and what they mean. Um, and what I argue is that it, it's in fact population politics, uh, that, that, that helps to furnish us as individuals, as communities, as members of a polity with the, 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 the kind of camp uh, categories, the temporal registers, the understandings, the interpretations of these trends, right? They become meaningful uh, through population politics, right? Um, so there is not a single valence to a particular demographic statistic or uh, a demographic projection, um, which populations matter to us, are interest, uh, of interest to us. Um, that's all determined um, by uh, population politics. And, and, and that takes place as different political projects, movements, intellectuals sort of attempt to um, sort of frame demographics in, in, in particular ways. And this isn't something that's new. So, um, and, and very, very briefly, you just, you, you look at these very, very early sort of pre-revolutionary examples of, for example, Franklin framing who is white, who is white is not Germans, you know, who is white is not Swedes. That seems, that doesn't seem to make sense, but, but part of what you're saying is this does make sense to Franklin and he, in, and he's constructing categories in the same way that we construct them um, now. And I don't know if you want to say any more about that. 
Yeah, absolutely. So, so you know, the, you can imagine population politics is not necessarily, in, in all cases, population politics isn't about race. I mean, even in, in the contemporary moment, you have certain um, sort of population politics taking place in places that are understood to be experiencing, let's say, uh, low population growth. And there is sort of alarmist discourses associated with that. Um, in some of these national contexts, um, excuse me, racial categories are not the center of that discussion, right? Um, in the U.S. context, population politics, I argue, as as uh, as no surprise, has long been um, linked to uh, white supremacist uh, thought and practice, uh, and it has been a means through which popul- certain sets of peoples have been designated as problem populations. Uh, and so I begin uh, with with Ben Franklin, uh, who, you know, provides us a, 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 an interesting and very early sort of prior to the establishment of uh, the the U.S. settler state, um, who, who, who talks to us about, you know, is worried about, among, among other populations, Germans, who he understands as not white. Uh, and he's reflecting um, in the 17th century about the number of, you know, the, the, the low number of, of whites in his mind uh, compared to non-whites uh, the world over. Um, and, and so this, this provides, in, in some ways, some of the what I talk about in the book, drawing on um, the German um, historian and, and philosopher of history, Reinhard Koselleck, this provides some of the sediments uh, of history upon which subsequent generations of political actors, uh, movements have used. So the language, this kind of like suggestion of, of invade, like a demographic invasion of swarms of this, um, uh, talk of the low numbers or declining numbers of whites, right? Which we can see today in discourses of the Great Replacement and the like. But there's a long history to that, uh, and so I begin um, sort of situating uh, the the contemporary moment, not just Latino civil rights groups, which which I've, I focus most on, but there's a history to racialized population politics, and I felt it important to lay out some of that history because it does provide a lot of the the kind of tropes that are still in circulation. For instance, the one about floods and natural disasters and the like. And one thing that I do in the introduction, which may or may not, people may catch it or not, I think it might be a little sort of subtle, is that I begin, we, we, we regularly and historically have talked about population growth and populations as like swarms and floods and using a variety of aquatic metaphors, um, uh, which a number of scholars have, have looked at in different historical moments. Uh, but I actually talk about not the populations as flooding, but of the flooding of demographic discourse and data. Like it's demographic discourse and data that, that we're saturated by, we're inundated by, um, which for me is an important pivot from the centering of, of, of populations that we take for granted, um, I rather foreground the demographic knowledge and, 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 and narratives and the like. Um, so that longer history for me, I mean, sets in many respects the stage for sort of the, the, the contemporary politics, but I also, it's important. One of the important things for me is that 
what we know about what I label in the book population politics is almost entirely from the vantage point of nativists, white supremacist groups, conservative groups who have their demo dystopias, which I can't take credit for for that that term. Actually, it's uh, a demographer and sociologist named Andrew Domingo, who's written some really fascinating work. He developed that term in the context of of, um, early 20th century literature. Um, and, and, and so I, I sort of pull from that. Um, he's also written some really interesting work that you'll find online about sort of, um, literary work on zombies and its relationship to demography and demo dystopias, which are these kind of like apocalyptic alarmist, uh, interpretations. But, but our attention has historically been on those kinds of movements, those kinds of narratives. And the, the, the book argues that minoritized populations have also, perhaps not as frequently or often, but have turned to population politics as a, a way to contest their exclusion, their marginalization, their sub, subjugation. Um, and, and so w- the, the case study sort of focuses on one group uh, of Latino, Latinx uh, organizations that is uh, attempting to uh, tell a different story about population trends and about the Latino population. Uh, and so uh, we, we can't just focus on, uh, let's say, the Samuel Huntington's of the world or John Tanton's of the world or Ann Coulter's of the world. There are also minoritized groups who have a different have their own stories to tell about demographics um, and often tell those stories to contest the more dominant and more widely circulated demo dystopias of, of, of a given generation. Well, and let's turn to the example that uh, you have researched for all of these years um, in the book. So during the Obama administration, as people anticipated the 2010 census, national Latinx organizations began a series of campaigns and crafted messages focused on strength in numbers. So can you talk a little bit about this case? And the statistical construction uh, of the Latinx population and its projected f- future, which is is the subject of one of the chapters. Yeah, this, so the, the, at the center of the the book is a, a, a particular political project or network coalition of Latino um, civil rights organizations. Uh, most of these organizations um, are either sort of located in in and around Washington, D.C., or devote the majority of their energies and attention uh, to sort of national political debates. Um, and they, they, these organizations, most of, some are, you know, the League of United Latin American Citizens, for instance, was founded in uh, the, the late 1920s. Um, but the majority of them were established in kind of like the civil rights era. Um, and some later, like more more recent, like Voto Latino, one of the organizations. Um, so the, just to say the names of the organizations, we have the League of United Latin American Citizens, uh, known as uh, uh, LULAC, Unidos US, which historically recently changed its name um, from the National Council of La Raza. Um, and people used to say, just call it La Raza. 
Um, the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed Officials Education Fund, um, Voto Latino, and then a, a coalition of these major national organizations known as the National uh, Hispanic Leadership Agenda, uh, NHLA. Uh, and so what I ended up uh, doing is um, ethnographic and qualitative work um, across, beginning in, in 2012, sort of exploring, tracking, following, participating to the extent that I could logistically and financially attend events, see what they did. Um, and this is all taking place sort of after the 2010 census, which flooded you know, public life with a ton of data about uh, demographics and led to you know, a huge wave of media coverage and commentary and pundit analysis uh, about the role of demographics, the coming 2050, the browning of America, the emergence of majority-minority future. And I sort of examine how these political actors um, who've been in this game, you know, now for decades and have participated in population politics, I would argue, since their foundation, um, I look at, you know, how they have sort of constructed and communicated and contested um, ideas about the Latino population and its relation to the country's future. Um, and so I do this uh, across the chapters that are known about, known as the future. Uh, and the reason why I picked the future for that section is that it was a moment in which these organizations were oriented in a profound ways to talking about the future, claiming the future, attempting to convince uh, relevant publics, whether funders or um folks on Capitol Hill or Latinx folks themselves, that this there, there was tr- a profound transformation on, underway. Uh, and the, the, the Latino Latinx population as being a, a key motor of those changes. Um, and so I track their, their kind of like response to when the data comes out and the kind of stories they tell. Uh, and then I follow that up by looking at how in the context of the 2012 election, which folks remember is Obama's uh, re-election uh, when he was re-elected. Uh, and I look at the way that they try to communicate a different, um, not only that the future is, um, you know, it's coming and it's a largely Latino future, but that that the future in some sense is already here as demonstrated through the results of the 2012 election. Uh, and then I, I follow that into the, the sort of post-election advocacy for immigration reform, which uh, if any anyone remembers, there was this momentary uh, belief that Im- comprehensive immigration reform would be secured in 2013. Um, and that did not happen. And, and the book sort of talks about how quickly how the future was in some ways forgotten or disavowed um, uh, by, by, by 2016, by 2015, 2016. And then we enter, we enter what the book calls the present. Um, so you, you masterfully just like took three chapters, the, the heart of the book and summarized <laughs> them uh, just so succinctly. I'm not sure I've ever had any author on the program do that. So bravo. But, be, but before we, I, I'd like to uh, dig just a little bit deeper into those three things, which you uh, 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 name forecasting, 
foreshadowing and forewarning. I hope I got that right. Yeah, uh, but, but, but before, you were way too modest about how the research for this book is done. So let me stop you. Um, I mean, obviously, political scientists and sociologists and others listening are somewhat familiar uh, with the methods that sociologists use. But but this book is the result of sort of several streams of um, research. And, I, and I'd like to just get you to say a little bit more about uh, the interviews that you did and who they were with, and also how you embedded yourself to do the ethnographic study, and then also the primary document research that you did, which the, all three of those things ground this incredibly impressively researched book. So I think you were too modest. Say a <laughs> couple, you. say a couple of more things. Thank you so much. Uh, so the, the book is based on, um, as you mentioned, three, keeping with the kind of aquatic <laughs> metaphors, like three streams of, of data. Uh, so the, the, the first source of, of, of data, um, is um, ethnographic. It's based on participant observation. Um, I took field notes. I participated in a wide uh, variety of events. Uh, the research took me um, all over the country to events that these organizations sponsored, the first of them being Voto Latinos, uh, what they just called their first power summit um, in um in spring of 2012. And then I subsequently um, moved to uh, Central Florida uh, and I observe these organizations, the kind of underground uh, voter operations and participate in them. So I stand in, in you know, grocery, outside of the grocery stores trying to register uh, folks to, uh, to vote and also subsequently do door knocking on behalf of these organizations, which are, um, at least at the time, were, were non, nonpartisan organizations, right? So they're nonpartisan uh, voter drives and outreach drives. So I participate in them and try to see not only like what that work looks like, but how the kind of demographic discourse and conversation is taking place. Like when and how are they talking about um, the population trends and discourses and stuff like that. Um, in addition to that, I conducted interviews both in Florida, but a, a, around the country. Uh, actually, I said before, after Florida, I go to Washington, D.C., and I spend about a year, year and a half in, in the Washington, D.C. area. And then subsequent to that, um, I, I, I moved to New York. I do some, some additional work in New York. Uh, and then after completing the Ph.D., I, I continue to go to Washington, D.C. two to three times a year um, to to attend events, um, as well as to interview um, leaders and advocates and things like that. And so the second stream is based on this qualitative interview data. Um, and I conducted about 70 interviews over this period, and that included the heads of some of these organizations, their staff, um, their volunteers, um, data analysts from uh, both within and outside of these organizations, uh, elected officials, uh, whoever I could sort of get a chance to chat with and talk with, I tried um, to get further insight into how they saw the world and what kinds of activities and, and what their imaginings were. This involved in some cases um, bringing an iPad with a series of, of um, images and demographic um sort of data 
and asking them to kind of reflect with me. Like, what does that headline mean to you? What does that figure mean to you? What do you think about this claim? That kind of stuff, in addition to just getting a sense of their kind of biographic professional background. And then the final stream, which is fundamental to this this project, is actually the materials that these organizations produce or consume. Um, and of course, that includes, you know, newspaper coverage and the like, but it's also getting hold of their press releases, PSAs that they produced. For instance, there's one with Lin-Manuel Miranda that's, that I talk about um, in, in, in the chapter on the 2012 election, um, looking at their business cards and the kind of like demographic statistics that are placed on business cards, um, as well as, um, you know, other, other kinds of reports that they produce. So I combine the kind of observational data, the interview data, and this like these primary documents uh, or primary materials that are both print and multimedia to try to tell a story. So I try to stitch them together. Some chapters draw more strongly on certain forms of data than other, but um, the majority of them sort of weave together some ethnographic vignettes, some quotes from respondents, and then, uh, you know, an analysis of the kind of textual and visual dimensions of these, these objects. Again, I think you're incredibly modest. I think it's actually, it's brilliant in all of the chapters, the way the three streams constantly come together and the way that you got Princeton University Press. So shout out to them to include enough of the graphics so that the reader has the same experience of, of, of being overwhelmed by a graph or being seduced by some tagline from the graph. So I, I think I think the way it's done is great. And I, I found myself, you know, again, understanding the motivations of, of the players that you're describing because you include that material. So I thought that was that was terrific. Well, thank you. Uh, one one other part I think that the the linking of this data allows is that it also allows me obviously I can't be everywhere at once. There are financial limitations, you know, traveling around the country. The some of these conventions that these organizations have are are quite pricey. Nothing is surprising for you know folks that go to PSA or ASA. But um, you know, so so linking these these various sources also allows me, uh, in particular moments, to tell a, a somewhat layered story. So it's not just a story that's like just in the weeds of this particular organization and what was happening. It allows me, for for instance, in the chapter on the 2012 election to kind of toggle between these underground events that I was observing in Florida, as well as the kind of like rhetoric and discussion of these organizations, you know, as they're communicating with the press or they're, they're doing stuff, you know, in Washington, D.C. So it allows, you know, the, the, I try to lean on the the different sources to allow me to sort of tell a story um, that's as three dimensional as possible, but also scale allows for a certain level of scaling. That let's say a straight ethnographic um, study in which I'm just embedded in a particular organization wouldn't have allowed. Let me. That's terrific, and um, and uh, thanks for that clarification because I'm not sure I would have completely understood uh, the last part. 
Um, I want to go back to the future part of the book, the three chapters that are forecasting, foreshadowing, and forewarning, and just get you to say just a little bit more um, about the context, uh, the content of each. So forecasting is is focused on the publication of the 2010 census. You've already said that. And, and you see political players begin to forecast Latino demographic futures. Um, can you say just a little bit more yeah. about what they were forecasting and how they were shaping their response, given what they assumed might be white fear over demographic change? Yeah, absolutely. So so I, I described these three, these three, um, practices as, as temporal tactics, right? They have like a temporal register. They're telling us about the future. Again, uh, these are part, these are sort of um, practices of population politics, but there's three of them that I, I, I foreground. Each chapter has a particular one. So I use uh, each chapter to tell the story of them. So the first one is forecasting and forecasting it doesn't res- mean to me just a, a, a sort of numerical projection though numerical projections are part of that. What forecasts do is they tell a story about what the future holds, right? So in this case, they do use numbers and data and all of that. But at the end of the day, the forecast is telling us something about what the future, uh, what's coming and how we should feel and think about it, right? So it's providing that sort of like richer account. Um and the forecast for me, that chapter, I, I discussed sort of like three even more micro techniques through which the forecasts are, are generated. Um, but the key thing here is that it involves an interplay between um, efforts to infuse particular figures with meaning such that um, one key figure was 50.5 million Latinos. Uh, that's what the census produced. That's a number of the Latino population in 2010. And so these organizations begin um, sort of putting the word strong in relationship to that figure regularly through speeches, op-eds, banners, and the like, right? So they're, and that's that's telling us how we should think about that 50.5, right? That that meaning is not inherent to the the figure. That work, that cultural political work is what gives it. In addition to that, it involves uh, developing this forecast involves um, making a set of choices about what figures to emphasize, whether to aggregate or disaggregate data, these kinds of things, kind of these presentational decisions, um, which also shape, you know, um, how we think about the future. And then the last is a kind of a narrative, right? So you fasten the figure with a narrative. And this narrative is one that is optimistic and, and 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 frames Latino population growth as something that's good for the country, as a boon for the country, to quote, to quote uh, one of the reports that came out. And these organizations are stressing that the future welfare of the, of the country is linked in a deep way to the Latino population as a result of its demographic trends. So how the Latino population goes, so goes the country, is the, is the kind of like argument. All of these elements and arguments and narratives and decisions about what data to emphasize, all of them are, are, are developed and decided in a context in which these organizations are profoundly troubled and worried about how uh, white America in particular, whether named or not, will respond to these demographic trends. Right. So this um, 
in some ways utopian deracialized kind of narrative of the future that they project um, is done um, to in attempts to mitigate uh, minimize lessen white demographobia white fear which again one of the key arguments of the book is that um, demographic anxieties and fears are not straight they're not responses to the demographics per se but to the way we understand those demographics and that understanding comes through um, these kinds of population politics um, and so one key claim for 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 uh, in the in the book is that the population politics you can't understand Latino population politics or the population politics of these groups without understanding the wider context and contestation with white demographic fear um, as cultivated and triggered by movements and intellectuals like Patrick Buchanan and the like. Um, so that's that's the the first one. Should I should I talk about the other? Yeah, for, you know, let's go to foreshadowing because um, you know we that chapter is focused on the 2012 presidential election and um, how these civil rights groups were trying to use the projection that. Uh, 12.2 million, I hope that's the right, uh, Latino yes. voters, you know, might cast a battle to sort of foreshadow your words, you know, a future political power. So yeah, what were the what were the uh, civil rights groups trying to, to do as the election approached? Yeah, so, so you know, just to sharpen the distinction between these, these, these tactics. So for, forecasting is telling you about a future, it's telling you about a future that is to come. And how you should think about that. So 2050 in the next few decades. Foreshadowing is drawing upon something that's happening in the present and making the case that it is indicative of uh, the future, that the future is either here or almost here. Right. So it's not just that the Latino population growth is happening and it will like shape the future, like the long term future. But it's actually you can see that future in a kind of embryonic form in the present. And that's what foreshadowing does. And so they use the 2012 election and the results of the election itself built on um, certain strategic use of, of certain projections about the election, the 2012, the 12.2 million projection that that's how many Latinos would vote, along with other figures that are communicating this idea that the future is not that far away, like it's actually much closer. Um, and so one thing to note about these, these temporal tactics is that they operate on, on, on at least two levels. One is to shape how we imagine the future. And then the other is how we sense the future, whether the future feels like it's right around the corner, whether it seems very far away and distant. So the, the foreshadowing is one of the means through which these organizations try to sort of encourage people to... Uh, sense that the future was like right around the corner, if not already here. Um, and 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 like with forecasting, it, this involves mobilizing demographic numbers and narratives in particular ways. The final um, uh, temporal forecast is is the subject of the, the the subsequent chapter, which I mentioned before, has to do with advocacy around immigration reform. So one thing that that that. Folks may remember from if, if you were listening to discourse, and now it's been many years, but 
the 2012 election seemed to have confirmed the, 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 the forecast and the forewarning of these organizations and others who said that the demographic trends are such that um, the Democratic Party, for instance, is in a, in a favorable position. The, Democrat, the, the Republican Party is in decline unless they radically change their, their philosophy and approach. People of color, a growing set of the, the electorate, um, are essentially going to dictate. You know, There was a lot of talk that the Latino vote in particular was going to be decisive. Like they were going to decide the election. Um, and so when Obama's reelected and the figures come out, it seems to confirm that. And so there was a strong sense among advocates um, and other observers that immigration reform long held off um, by the Republican Party was now a reality. So right around the corner, immigration reform would happen. And, and so... Um, what what I show in that chapter is that these advocates start engaging in, in forewarning. And so what forewarning does, and of course, these are linked. So I, I sort of separate them and divide them to make that a little clearer, analytically distinguish them. But forewarning basically says, this is, this is what the future holds. You already know that it's coming right around the corner. It's almost here. Um, and if you decide to ignore, reject, attack us, these are going to be the consequences, right? And so you're forewarned. Now the future is like we're going to in some ways threaten you uh, about the future, specifically to Republicans who said we're not going to care about immigration reform. Romney, as you recall, had, you know, people criticized later was saying, you know, you can self-deport. And the kind of thing and the kind of rhetoric and discourse around Mexicans, which we saw, of course, Trump pick up. But the forewarning was saying, if you continue on that path, you are setting up your party for ruin. And in fact, there's images like a, a extinction. Um, and so that's what happens in, for, in, in that chapter. But as, you, as we all know, um, that's not how things ultimately turned out. No, and chapter six um, uh, <clears throat> moves to the near present. Uh, you know, you look at the 2016 election of Donald Trump. You look at the increasing anti-Latinx and anti-immigrant rhetoric and policy, um, and and you're in the near present because, of course, this book manuscript had to be handed in. So, I I guess one question I would ask is, you know. And then I want to ask you about the work that you're doing now beyond this book. But, you know, how does that moment in time, 2016, clarify what you're arguing throughout the book about population politics? And also, is there anything that's changed since you wrote the book that would sort of, you know, you would you would add if you if you could put it into the um, manuscript? I think it clarified a great deal. Uh, I was in Washington, D.C., uh, operating a phone, like a voter um, helpline with one of these organizations on election night. And, uh, you know, I, I thought that that election um, was going to be kind of the closing vignette for the for the book. Um, and it, it, it provided there's a couple of things that 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 moment sort of raised for me. First of all, it helped me better appreciate that despite the discourse after Trump was elected, the idea that this was like, it came out of the blue, 
And, you know, this was like a profound shift. In fact, the book kind of tells a story that challenges that. And in many respects, if you can read, especially the chapter on immigration reform, the writing writing was on the wall already. Like the shifts were beginning to take place. And as the book already lays out, there's a long history to the kind of rhetoric and discourse that the Trump administ- Trump and his admin- subsequent administration uh, would 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 pick up. So in in many respects, it it helped clarify, uh, or it, it helped me um, better see the the linkages across time. But it also, I think, drives home the point that we need to be very skeptical and worry um, and not trust um, demographic inevitability. You know, and 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 the idea that if there's a sort of like the you, the country had turned the corner on on race issues, let's say, um, and a lot of that rhetoric was fueled by a, a kind of trust in demographics, an inevitability, and I think that chapter, you know, the Trump moment, re, you know, I think taught us at least to some extent. I don't know if we're still listening, but um, that we we need to you know be skeptical of the inevitability talk. Um, so those are some of the things that, that that chapter, it also provided me an opportunity to see how these organizations sort of responded to a, a, a kind of somewhat different political environment um, and what population politics would or would not look like in a, in a moment in which, you know, white demographobia, white demo dystopias um, were kind of um, front, front stage and and being espoused, um, you know, from the from the quote unquote highest office, um, and so the chapter allowed for that. Um, I think it's an interesting chapter because the organizations had to adjust and think and reflect and debate and struggle over how to make sense of a moment that for them and many other political observers, including political scientists and sociologists who had written off the possibility of a Trump election. Um, I want to be clear that these organizations were not the only ones who were sort of felt blindsided by that. Um, but, but the chapter does allow for me to sort of try to capture uh, the kind of like messy, you know, debates and discussions that took place afterwards. Um, in, in terms of the, the second part, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief of, of the question. You know, I think we're, st- we're still in that present, you know? So that's, that's the, um, I think that the the Trump moment, which has a long history to it, um, we're still in that moment in many respects. Um, the demographic discourse after the, you know, since in August, the Census Bureau released new data from the 2020 census. The demographic discussion is somewhat different from 2010. But one of the things that 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 appears is that there's a lot less um a lot less coverage about demographic trends. I think we're in a moment there's a greater skepticism um for some of these these discourses. Now how long will that be? If that's just a moment and in fact we're going to return to a greater sense of demographic return to this like sense of demographic and inevitability which I think still is pretty dominant but in a far more muted far far less sort of strongly or stridently articulated these days in most sectors um, with the exception of of some of the sort of conservative 
um, white extremists, which still are holding on to a, a demographic inevitability um, that these demographic trends signal the end of, you know, white civilization and the like, I think. Um, yeah. Well, the book is so rich. I want to thank you for taking the time to talk to me about it. And uh, my own reading of the book was just, it was very hard to put down. Uh, sometimes I'm intimidated if a book is going to be, you know, a little bit further out of my sub uh, field than I'm comfortable with. But um, you do a remarkable job of, uh, first of all, organizing and this book so well that all of these concepts that you've had very short time to describe here uh, are really made so apparent and rich to the reader. So I really um, encourage people to, 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 to get their hands on it. I want to ask you what's next. I know this book is out and you're just promoting it, but um, I hear there's another book project in the works and I'm, I'm, I'm wondering what it is. It thinks uh, there, there. So there's two, two, two book projects. Um, I would say there's like three, and I'll be brief here. The, you know, I'm going to continue some of this kind of demographic work. I want to do a little bit more about the concept of of demographobia, which which I don't co- didn't coin. It's been kind of in circular. There's an interesting story to that, but um, I still think we need to really think and unpack and 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 retheorize what demographic fear means and how we should approach it. Um, so that's that, that I'll probably work that out in a series of articles. Uh, in terms of book projects, I'm I'm currently working with two colleagues, Julie Dowling, a sociologist at UIC, the University of Illinois, Chicago, and Christina Mora, uh, who's at University of California, Berkeley. We're working on a project together that's looking at the relation, trying to better understand the relationship between practices and experiences of racialization and trust in government. Um, and that's going to be a qualitative uh, interview-based study. We're doing a kind of study of, of residents uh, um, in, in the San Francisco Bay and in Chicago across the major ethno-racial groups um, to get a better sense of, of, of again, um, sort of the, the, the kind of political and experiential um, context for racialized political trust or distrust. And then this, the second book project, which has been severely slowed down because of COVID, is a project that's close to home for me. I was born and raised in, in Chicago and, 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 and worked many years uh, prior to grad school in the Puerto Rican community. Um, I'm going to be... Um, I'm in the process of, of, of launching a, a project that looks at the afterlife of political repression against Puerto Rican anti-colonial activists and movements in Chicago. Uh, and so that's going to be based on archival work and oral history work to understand how memories and experiences of FBI and police surveillance and among other tactics um, has impacted um, activists uh, and um, community development um, afterward, a key concept for that project, I suspect, will be political trauma. Um, and so, yeah, so th- that's the direction I'm moving. W- that book is going to sort of continue my growing interest as a result of this project on temporality. Um, but rather than thinking about how political projects leverage and think about the future, I'll be thinking about collective memory and how the past is understood and commemorated Um, um 
in, in the context of political repression. Well, um, Michael, as somebody who used to live in Chicago and loved this book, I hope you'll come back to uh, New Books and Political Science when you finish one of those. I want to throw out a very special thank you to uh, the editorial assistant uh, student from St. Joseph's, Daniela Campos, who uh, was so excited about the book. And I have a large stack of books, and she, she was the person who was constantly reminding me to get it to the top of the stack and move it forward. And also a shout out to Cristina Beltran, who initially said to me, you must do this book. He's a sociologist, but he's also doing political science. (laughs) So a big thank you to Michael Rodriguez-Munez. The book is Figures of the Future, Latino Civil Rights and the Politics of Demographic Change. That's from Princeton University Press 2021. Thanks so much, Michael. Thank you so much, Susan.